39 days ago was Easter Sunday, which makes tomorrow the 40th day after Easter Sunday, which makes that the day that Jesus ascended to heaven. We call that Ascension Day. It always falls on a Thursday. But we're going to take some time tonight to discuss the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's actually two things that we often discuss as one. The ascension, which is the going up of Jesus from the earth, and what's called the session of Jesus Christ, which means the sitting down of him at the right hand of the Father. But we discuss them as the same thing. And it's important for us to do this because while we take time for Christmas every year, we take time for Easter every year, we like to talk about Pentecost, we like to talk about some of these other things, we must know that the ascension of Christ is not an afterthought. It's not something that's tagged on the end of the story and and part of the happily ever after that he just ascended to heaven and that was that. The New Testament especially talks about the ascension of Christ as the culmination of his mission on the earth. And when we tell the story, and I don't know that there's anything wrong with that, but typically we'll say, Jesus died and he rose again. And that's true. But what happened after that? And as we go through some of these passages I'm going to read now, we'll see that The New Testament describes Jesus dying, rising from the dead, and then ascending to the Father. That, for them, was the end, although it's ongoing, of the gospel. Let me read two passages to give you an example of what I'm talking about. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It ends with taken up in glory. Also in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So again, it's a doxology. It's worship of Christ Jesus, and it ends with the ascension of Christ. So, I believe, without taking a whole lot of time to demonstrate it, that the ascension is absolutely essential to the gospel. Without that, something is missing. And when we lose key pieces of the gospel, and I could say they're all key pieces, aren't they? When we lose a key piece of that, you jeopardize your soul because what you end up with is an incomplete faith. You have a faith that is right where it's right, but perhaps is missing something. And we see several cases of this in Scripture where Paul would encounter somebody where he says, there's something that you need to add to your faith because you're missing something. And I believe that a lack of proper emphasis and understanding of the ascension is an example of something that can be missing in our faith. Not that we don't believe it, but that we have not fully realized it. So many today, in the church and outside of the church, are ravaged by fear, by doubt, by depression, by anxiety. I don't need to explain to you the statistics on this, that we've never been more stressed out and fearful than we are now, when perhaps there's less cause for it because of the way that we live. And this especially affects the church. And as a pastor, I deal with this all the time, where godly, born-again Christians come to me scared to death that they're somehow not really saved. And this is a tragedy. And I take it as a given that God does not intend us to live that way. God loves us too much to want us to hang on barely and and not know that we're going to be saved at the very end. That's not our Lord. 
In fact, Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about those who fail to enter into the rest of the Lord. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1.8 says that in Christ we have joy unspeakable. In Philippians 4.6, we have peace that passes all understanding. And in 2 Timothy 1.7, it says we have not been given a spirit of fear. So no condemnation, no fear, joy unspeakable, peace that passes all understanding. All of that is yours in Christ Jesus, but there are many believers that have not experienced those things. And I do not think that we can say, well, it's just God's will that I have no joy. God has already told us it is his will for us to have joy. And I think that if this is an area of your life that you struggle with, the ascension, the proper understanding of what that means can help to plug that gap in your faith. You believe it, but it's time to understand it because it teaches us to rest in the finished work of Christ and also tells us why we need not accept accusation from the enemy or from anybody else. When you feel judged by yourself, sometimes we're our own worst judge, aren't we? Or we're judged by somebody else. Or even by the Lord, and we feel that God is condemning us, and God's got his thumb pressing us down, and I can't pray, I can't lift my eyes to heaven and worship because God will get angry with me. You've got to return to the image we're going to use tonight, which is of the courtroom of heaven, and be reminded not of what you feel, what you think, or even what you believe, but what is true, and cling to that. And so tonight we're going to lean into the truth of what the Bible says. And Jesus told us that the truth would what? Set us free. So I'm really excited to talk about this. The ascension is one of my favorite topics. So let's, let's get into this. We're using the image tonight of the courtroom of heaven. Imagine that heaven is a big courtroom. And the first player that we have there is, as Abraham called him, the judge of all the earth, who is, of course, God himself. We're in a courtroom there is the judge of all the earth, and that is God. Now, a lot of times we will say things that sound very tough and spiritual, like nobody can judge me, or who are you to judge me, or not even God can judge me. But it's important to know three things very quickly here. As the creator of the world, God has the authority to judge. Say, so what gives you the right? I made all of this. It's mine. God creates, sustains everything, so he has authority to judge. Number two, because God is all-powerful, meaning he has all might, he has all knowledge, he has all wisdom, he has the power to judge. So you might say, well, you have the right to judge, but how do I know you're going to be a good judge? How do I know you're going to get it right? How do you know you're even going to be able to execute it? Because he is God, he's almighty. He has the power to judge. He has the authority to judge. And number three, because he is the Holy One, entirely apart from sin, in perfect, untouchable goodness, he has the responsibility to judge. This is key. As the creator of the world, he has authority to judge. As the all-powerful one, he has the power to judge. And we might say, well, you might have jurisdiction and you might have the power, but if you're just as bad as me, then you can't judge me. But God is more righteous than any of us not even close. He has the obligation, the responsibility to judge us because to allow sin to go unpunished is not a good thing. And every one of us will have to stand before the judge. 
That is not able to be escaped. We're all going to have to give an account of our lives before God. Revelation 20, verse 12, when you get to the end of the Bible, John writes that he saw the dead, great and small. So there's no division. Some people get to go, some don't. Great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So everyone is going to be judged before the Lord, before the judge. And the criteria by which man is going to be judged is the Lord's own righteousness. To deviate from that righteousness is what we call sin. That's what sin is. To act or be or believe or think or speak in a way that is different from who God is. Because God is all good. He is all loving. He is all compassionate. So to deviate from him even in the slightest is to introduce cancer into the world. That's what sin is. I've defined it this way before. Sin is anything that makes life worse. Sin does not make things better. Sin only makes things worse. And God created a world and looked at it and said it was good until sin entered into the world through the will of man and that's when things began to go bad. That's the criteria by which we will be judged. Are you a sinner? And you know the truth. Every one of us is a sinner. Everyone since Adam. You, have, first of all, have committed sins. You have not lived a perfect life. And if you think that you have, you've not taken a very long look in the mirror, I must say. But more than that, it's not just because of the things you've done, because the things that you've done came out of you. Have you ever said something and you go, where did that come from? I'm going to tell you, it came from you. It came from inside of you. The thoughts that came out of you, the, the, the actions that you commit, those things are internal to you. That's the problem. We can't blame society because every society has this. We can't blame our parents because every parent and every child has done this. Sin is internal, which means when you stand before God, you have no chance to be pardoned. You will never hear the gavel fall, not guilty, because you are guilty. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the standard, the glory of God. God does not grade on a curve. We are all guilty, which means that we are all destined to be convicted in that courtroom. And the punishment is eternal death in hell. Hell is to be cast away from all that is good, all that is glorious, all that is light, all that is love. The Bible describes it as a consuming fire that never dies, or as being eaten alive by maggots that are never going to die. It calls it the outer darkness, separation from everything and from everyone. That's the punishment for sin, because that's how serious sin is. Well, my sin isn't that bad, but it's the same heart in you that has motivated every serial killer, every rapist, every mass murderer around the world. It's in you, and that's what God must judge. You say, I thought God was, was kind. Oh, he is kind. He's so compassionate and he's so merciful. But he cannot pardon sin. That would be unjust. Of all the things that we're learning in this season of our history, we are developing a very keen sense for justice. So let me appeal to that for a minute. How do you feel when you see murderers go free? Or even the thought of that. Or the thought of not, somebody not getting the fullness of what they deserve. How would you feel if the worst terrorist the world had ever known was captured and then brought before the judge, and then he walks free. 
And the judge says, well, you know, I'm just so kind and so compassionate. I couldn't bear the thought of this. There would be riots in the streets over that. They'd tear that courtroom down and that judge would pay the penalty for that guy. So don't come to God and then say, you've got to let me go because you're kind and compassionate. It would not be kind and compassionate. It would be unjust to let your sin go. And God is all good. Which let me tell you, that is a terrifying thing. To think of somebody who is all good with not even a little bit of wickedness in them. Because sometimes that's what we appeal to and we rely on. We rely on the fact that people know how it is. And so they'll give us a break. God's like, that, that's not me. I'm all good. And I know what must be done. That's the judge. God is the judge. Next in the courtroom of heaven, we have the accuser. The prosecuting attorney, whose name is Satan. Satan is a Hebrew word, which means adversary. And not just like an enemy, but it, it could even be a technical term of a prosecuting attorney who stands before the judge to contend with you. The word that we have, devil, is a Greek word, diabolos, if you speak Spanish. Diablo comes from the same word. And that means slanderer. Both of them amount to the same thing. They describe what the devil does in the courtroom of heaven. In Job, we get the clearest picture of this. There are two instances that it gives us. I'm just going to read one. From Job 1, verses 9 through 11, Satan stands before God and God says, Have you seen Job? Satan, isn't he a righteous man? And Satan says in verse 9, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. That's the accuser. He's accusing Job of only serving God because of the stuff God gave him. And Satan says, if you take all that away, he's going to curse you to your face. I've heard people accuse the church of this before. They're only serving Jesus because times are good. If they were poor like me, if they were beaten down like me, they'd never sing those songs to Jesus. It's a demonic, diabolical accusation to bring in. And of course, God allows Satan then to test him in what we would call a trial. Isn't that interesting? That's what a trial is. I'm going to try your faith and see if it's real. I'm going to test it and see if there's anything there. This is what Satan does. He accuses men before God. His desire is to invoke the wrath of the righteous judge and demand him to execute justice. Demand a trial in this moment. Because he knows that we're all sinners and he desires the death of every man, woman, and child on the world. There are some interesting passages about Satan. We know that he was a fallen angel. He was glorious. He was beautiful. He was in the presence of God, and he was cast down. Ezekiel 28 describes that he was in glory in Eden, that he was resembling all of these precious gemstones until his pride caused him to be cast down. Isaiah 14 gives what we call the five I wills. I will exalt myself above everyone else, even the Most High, until God swiftly judged him and cast him down. That's the attitude of Satan. He's full of pride. He truly believes that he is above all this, that he belongs above even the Lord himself. Matthew 4, verse 9, the very temptation he gave to Christ was, I'll give you all this if you bow down and worship me, because that is Satan's heart. He despises humanity. He despises everything about us. He hates that God loves us. He sees nothing worth loving in us. He despises life. He wants to destroy it. If you've ever seen somebody whose life has just been ravaged 
by the devil. It never gets better. That's Hollywood, man. Hollywood tells you that Satan lives in a penthouse somewhere in New York City and everything's great. That's not true. People who follow Satan, they end up in squalor all alone with nothing because that's what he wants for every man, woman, and child. I recently heard a testimony of somebody who was, who was dealing with somebody who was possessed and the demon began to cry out from the person and reviling him for being a creature and calling him, you're, you're born in blood and mud and filth and you're disgusting and you can't even see how gross you are. And that's the attitude of Satan. He sees life and he hates it. You can see this in some people too. They see nothing worth redeeming in people. They see nothing good in, in humanity. And they think it would be better if we all just died off and were wiped out. That's also a very diabolical attitude, which is why he comes in. He says, I know they're all sinners. And I know that you're compassionate to want to show them mercy. But I'm going to step up and I'm going to be the one to prosecute this case because I want to see them all dead and I want to see you hurt. That's the accuser. He also goes around tempting us. This is why Satan tempts, because he wants to see us fall. He wants to expose us for who we are. He wants to show himself and the Lord that there is nothing greater than me. They're wicked and you're a fool for loving them. That's Satan. So even if God in his justice were disposed to show clemency to us, he's got a prosecuting attorney in the courtroom who knows the law perfectly. He knows what is required. He knows that the wages of sin is death, which is why he's constantly bringing people into the Lord's courtroom and saying they're a sinner and they deserve death and you must execute that. Well, then there we are. We're accused. We're guilty before the judge. So what are we, we going to do? God cannot violate his righteousness, as I just said. That would be absolutely unthinkable. But here's the, the wonderful thing. God in his love sees it as equally unthinkable just to allow us to be condemned to hell forever. Read in Hosea chapter 11. He's talking about all the things that the nation of Israel deserved in their judgment. But in the beginning of chapter 11, he says, but I... I taught you to walk. He uses this beautiful image of a dad with his child. He says, I held your hands and, and toddled with you. And I, I raised you and I showed you how to run and all these things. And he says, can I just give you up? And he says, no, I will not. I am the Lord and I'm going to execute my compassion upon you. So I'm going to judge you, but I'm not going to destroy you utterly, he says. And that is God's heart for all of humanity. He said, how could, I, how could I give you up? God saw every moment of you from the moment you were conceived in your mother's womb up till now, and he loves you so deeply. Even parents who have these adversarial relationships with their children, there's still the broken heart that comes with it, knowing that this little baby girl or boy was, was mine. And I don't like where we are now, but I still love them to death. But how can the wrath of God which is absolutely good and must be satisfied. How can that be satisfied? And yet also he be able to show the mercy that he desires to show. Where's the pardon here? Well, the Old Testament taught us something very important. The New Testament tells us that God used the law and the nation of Israel to teach the world a cosmic lesson about what he would accept. And the lesson he taught us is that God would accept a perfect sacrifice. This is why they would bring the lambs, they would bring the bulls, they would bring the goats and the turtle doves. They all had to be perfect, flawless, without mark for the red heifer. They couldn't have a single white hair on it because it had to be totally without blemish. But as the writer to Hebrews says, how can the blood of bulls and goats pardon sin? Psalm 49 verse 7 says, no man can ransom another because you've got to ransom your own self first. So how is that possible? 
Well, you know this verse, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God said, if anybody's going to pay this price, it's going to have to be me, my Son, Jesus Christ. And so that's what happened. The second person of the triune Godhead, the Son of God, the Logos, the one who was with God and was God, who had been existing before time, who spoke the word into existence, became incarnate. He joined himself in eternal hypostatic union with man. So now the Son was not just God, but he was God and man, without mixture, without dilution, and was born in a manger to the Virgin Mary. The glory of God brought down into the squalor of humanity. Can I just take a minute and say, while Satan despises earth and despises man and wants nothing to do with it, Jesus Christ was willing to share in our squalor and our uncleanness because he loved us so much. And you know the story. He lived a, a perfect life. He did not sin. He could not sin. He was God. He had the option open to him as a man, but he was the Lord God holy. He was not going to sin. He taught us about love. He taught us about righteousness. He taught us about repentance. He cleared up a lot of tradition that had gotten in the way between God and man. And then he was nailed to a cross. Can, have you ever just taken the time to ponder the horror of that? He said, well, if God showed up to me, I'd listen to him. God did show up, and we stretched his arms out, and we nailed him to a tree and lifted him up until he suffocated to death after we beat him bloody. That's what we did. The light shone into the darkness, but the darkness did not love it because it exposed who we were. And in that moment, Jesus Christ became the spotless sacrifice upon whom God could pour out all of his just wrath that deserved to be poured out upon you, upon his son Jesus, who didn't deserve any of it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Old Testament law says, cursed is everybody who dies by hanging on a tree. Jesus took the curse for you and for me. And Isaiah 53 tells us that it was for our transgressions that he was crucified. It was to redeem us. He was the cosmic blood sacrifice that was required. And the disciples saw that and they lost all hope because their Lord Jesus had died. But you all know what happened on the third day, don't you? Jesus Christ came out of that grave, not just for his own sake, but to signal to all of us forever that the sacrifice had been accepted, that God said, this will count. That's how we know. People have asked me, how do you know that Jesus dying on the cross was enough? Because Jesus came back to life. Muhammad didn't come back to life. Joseph Smith didn't come back to life. Buddha didn't come back to life, but Jesus Christ lives even now. There is no one like our God. And after Jesus rose from the dead, getting to our point tonight, the first person to see him was Mary Magdalene. Again, someone who had had seven demons in her. And yet the first person that the risen Lord spoke to after his resurrection was her. He is not afraid to share in our uncleanness. And she sees him and she falls down and you can got a picture of her holding tight to him. He says, don't cling to me. He says, because I have not yet ascended to my father. He says, go and tell them what? That I've risen? No, he says, go and tell them that I am ascending to my God and to your God. 
That was the culmination. And the end of the story, Mark 16, 19, 40 days after that resurrection, so 2,000-ish years before tomorrow, Mark 16, 19 says that the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And that's where the curtain draws. Because it was finished. He had been in glory with God. He laid aside that glory. He became a man. He lived with us. He suffered with us. He died on the cross. Went down even into the grave after that pain. He rose up and then went all the way back up and returned to his place. Except now he had brought the forgiveness of humanity with him. Can somebody say amen or something? I mean, give me a break. (laughs) Hebrew says he made purification for sins and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. So now what? Now what? We're back in the courtroom of heaven. We still have the judge. We still have the accuser. We still have you and me, who are the accused, you might say. But now God is able to offer pardon. Why? Because now we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney. You've got a prosecutor, but now you've got somebody standing there on your team. Now, before you had the the kind and merciful, yet the unflinchingly just judge. You had your vicious accuser that wanted nothing more than to see you dead in hell. But now there's a new figure there who's really an old figure. Christ Jesus, your mediator. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator. You don't need anybody else. You don't need a saint to pray for you. You don't need Mary to pray for you. You don't need your priest or your pastor. You have one mediator, Christ Jesus. And there's nobody else that's going to be enough for you. He's there now. So what does Jesus do in heaven now? He's ascended to heaven. Does he just sit around and and be Jesus? Well, no. He's very busy. He functions, among other things, as your priest, your advocate, interposing his blood between you and judgment, And Jesus spends all day writing names in the book of life, which he will produce to his father on the final day in Revelation chapter 20. Hebrews 7.25 says he is able to save to the uttermost. How far? To the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What's an intercession? To go between two people. That's a priest. A priest has one foot in the divine and one foot in in the human. And Jesus Christ embodies that more than anybody else, right? The whole book of Hebrews goes on and on about that. How he's a greater priest. He's a greater sacrifice. And he stands between you and God. And the accuser still approaches the bench. He still comes in and he's got his his briefs and he says, now it's time to, to accuse this person. But now Jesus Christ intercedes for you there. You don't stand in your own defense. You have the Son of God to defend you. So when Satan comes and points out your failures and your flaws and says, Job only serves you because of the things you've done for him. She only loves you because she was raised that way. And if she hadn't been, she would have gone after somebody else. Jesus Christ steps up. It's like the enemy coming in and saying, this person owes a fine of $1 million. And then Jesus Christ comes in and says, Lord, we have the receipt, your honor. It's already been paid, except for Jesus Christ. He's showing the prince in his, in his hands, the wound in his side, the wounds in his feet. These are the receipts. It's been paid for. So Satan says, that man deserves to die. And he says, yes, but I've already died for him. Isn't that awesome? There's nowhere for the accusation to land because it's already been paid for. Lord, your wrath must be poured out. I've already poured out my wrath on my son, Jesus. Do you have anything else to say? 
Now you got to turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3, all right? This is where we get a picture of this. It's an Old Testament picture, but it's revealing a New Testament truth. Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to read this. We're going to read this story and, and keep everything in mind that we just talked about. And put yourself in the shoes of the accused person here. This is Zechariah the prophet having a vision of Joshua, who was the high priest of the returned exiles. They were trying to rebuild the temple. They were coming out of captivity in Babylon and Persia. They were trying to restore the nation. But they were very aware of their own inadequacy and their own sin. So we see in chapter 3, verse 1. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. But the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And we believe, without getting too far into it, that the angel of the Lord is, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of reasons to believe that, but just know that there he is. This is what happens in heaven. Satan has dragged Joshua, the priest of these people, dressed in filthy garments, right? He's guilty. Of course he's guilty. You're guilty. I'm guilty. And he's accusing him. And you see God's attitude towards Satan when Satan accuses one of his people. He says, may you be rebuked because we've already decided to save this one. He says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? What's that? A brand, it's like a stick. It's like a log that you would burn. It's like you see it fall into the fire and you snatch it out so it doesn't burn. You ever had that happen? You drop something into the fire on accident, you got to reach in and you got to grab it real quick. So he says, that thing deserves to burn. He says, but I've already pulled it out of the fire. And he gets angry and so they clothe him in, in new righteous garments. And this is what happens with you. The accuser steps in to accuse, but instead the advocate says, Your Honor, we've already determined to save this one. There's no case here. Her name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And the Lord turns to the accuser and he says, Get out of my courtroom. We've already handled this. And you then are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ standing before God. And you might look at your own vestment, your own righteousness, and say it's no good. Yeah, you're right. But you're not standing before God in your own righteousness anymore. You're standing before God in His righteousness. If Christ can be accepted before God, then so are you. Oh, isn't that wonderful to think about? Because you are there in his name. You're there by his blood. So if Jesus is accepted before the Father, then so are you. You are a brand plucked from the fire. You were falling in and the Lord reached in and pulled you out. God chose to save you. So the accusations of the enemy don't stick. This is how Romans 3.26 says God could be just and the justifier. He's the righteous one and he's the righteous maker. He's the one who executes wrath, but he also pardons those who come to him in Jesus' name. That's what the ascension means. That we are clothed in righteousness. That we are pardoned. And we have a mediator who never tires of interceding for us. Now we know this. None of this is news to you. We know this on a heavenly level. We know this on a doctrinal level. 
Every one of us would believe this, and you could probably give a good answer if you had to explain what all this means. But it's time for us to learn how to apply this to our everyday lives. Because as I said at the beginning, we know what God intends for us, which is joy and peace and all the rest of it. But many of us are not living in those things. And it's not about me coming up and saying some kind of incantation over you to make you joyful. It all comes through faith, which is why if you understand this, you've got to make the connection between it and your life. Because once you do, you will enter into the rest of the Lord. Satan is an accuser. And he does not just accuse you to God. Satan accuses God to you, doesn't he? This is what he did in the Garden of Eden. He said, did God really say that you may not eat of any the fruit of the garden? You will not die. He's accusing them. God's keeping something from you. Or he'll come in and he'll say, God doesn't really love you. God lied because he promised all these things and you're not experiencing them. Therefore, God is not good. Yeah, I'm saved, but I'm not going to experience any of that. He accuses you to yourself. Say, it might be good for all these people, but you know what you're like. You know what you did this morning. What makes you think you can come in here and say amen with all these people? You know what you've done. Maybe it was decades in the past. And Satan brings it up and he accuses you to yourself. He also accuses you to other people and other people to you. You ever sit around and you just start thinking, you know what? I don't think they ever cared about me. I don't think they really love me. They, yeah, they, they hate me. They want me gone. They, they don't want anything to do with me anymore. And the next time you see them, everything's fine. You're like, what was that all about? Because Satan was accusing them to you. Because remember, he, he hates love. He hates unity. He hates all that. He's an accuser. So you know that Satan accuses you to God. We've just learned how God handles when accusations come to him about you. So how do you handle it when Satan brings accusations about God to you or about you to yourself? He's telling lies. The Bible calls Satan the father of lies. The Lord says that he hates anybody who loves and practices a lie because that is who Satan is. And they all amount, all the things that we go through, God doesn't love you. You've committed the unforgivable sin. I can't believe how many Christians believe that they've done that. It's remarkable, but it's not true. When he comes in and says, you'll never be like those other Christians. You've got to keep your head down and be quiet because you'll be saved, but you better watch it. God doesn't want you to pray. If you worship, you'll be blaspheming the Holy Spirit. All these things. It all amounts to a denial of the reality or possibility of salvation. And so Christians who believe and have done everything that is necessary for salvation, who have believed in their heart and confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and risen from the dead, spend their time wondering if they're truly saved. Christians every day fall prey to these lies, leading to a life of fear, even though the Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear. Living a life of anxiety, even though Jesus said, be anxious for nothing. Living a life of doubt, even though the Lord has already told us what is true. I'm here to tell you, it does not matter if you still sin. Or it does not matter if you go through hard times and it makes your life feel miserable. The ascension of Jesus Christ is still true. You are not about to mess that up. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And a lot of times we pause and close the, the word and start to talk about that. Yes, don't sin. I don't want you to sin. If I catch you sinning, I'm going to get on your case about it. Right? Don't sin. 
But you got to finish the verse. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a defense attorney, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You must believe that God has chosen to save you. That God is not folding his arms waiting to see how this whole thing pans out. God has chosen to save you. You were in the fire and he pulled you out. And believe that Jesus is interceding for you right now. And I know how this thought goes because I've been there before. You think, yes, I know that all of that is true. But God and I have had a conversation and I'm in a unique situation. Oh, I believe this for not very long in the final analysis, but way too long. That God's like, listen, pal, you better shape up. And you better never sin again, because if you do, I don't want to hear you worshiping. I don't want to hear you praying. I don't want to hear you reading that Bible until you get it right. Doesn't that just sound like Satan, right? Anytime you hear the voice of God and it tells you, don't pray, don't go to church, don't read your Bible, don't worship, yeah, you can go ahead and toss that one out, can't you? But we think, well, listen, I, I've, I've, I've made a deal with God. I made a bargain with God, and we're working that through. And I know the voice of God. Do you, though? The Bible says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. People say, well, an angel appeared to me. That doesn't mean anything if it's going to oppose the gospel. That's what Paul said. He says, if you preach any other gospel, you're going to hell. And if any angel comes to you and tells you that a different gospel, that angel's going to hell too. You say, Paul, come on. No, he's that serious. And Satan will masquerade as a pastor. Or he'll masquerade as what you think is the voice of the Lord. He'll masquerade as something that feels very religious and spiritual. You'll have a... a cathartic experience, but at the end of it, you've somehow introduced a lie mixturing in with the truth. How do we do this? You evaluate the content of the thought or the idea. And you consider, is this voice that I'm believing the voice of an advocate or an accuser? Because if it's an accusation, we know who the accuser is. And if it's an advocate on your behalf, then you know that that's the Lord Jesus Christ. What about conviction? Yeah, there is conviction, but the Bible says that it is the Lord's kindness that leads us to repentance. Look at how Jesus dealt with sinners in the, in the Gospels. It makes you uncomfortable. When they dragged that woman caught in adultery, and he said, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. And then he says, I don't condemn you. Go your own way. You go, well, I don't know about that, Jesus. I mean, she had done the wrong thing. You think Jesus is going to come to you and be less compassionate to you? Jesus is your advocate. He's on your team. When the Holy Spirit speaks, it says that he groans and he grieves and he wants us to come back to the Lord. Accusation is different than conviction. Accusation says, if you do that one more time, you're going to hell. God's told me I've only got one more chance. I've heard people say that. I know God's, and if I ever, I've lost my salvation. That is not the Lord. That is not your advocate. That's not the one that got so mad at Satan for accusing Joshua. He had him tossed out of the courtroom of heaven. Remember when David refused to kill Saul, even though he had the chance? Because he said, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. If you have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God in Christ Jesus, 1 John says that you have been anointed by the Spirit. So how dare Satan come and raise his hand against you? Well, I'm not there yet. Stop. Would you stop looking at yourself? Look at Christ who's already ascended to the right hand of God and is interceding for you. And there is how much condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? 
None. No condemnation. So if you're feeling condemned, that's not God. Do you got it? I'm trying to say this because there are so many people bound up in this, and I get angry at the enemy for binding up God's people into thinking that they've got to shuffle around and not lift up their eyes to the Lord, when in reality, God has opened up a glorious inheritance for them and invited them to sit at his banqueting table, and he's given them a new name, and he says, you can call me Abba, Father. And we come in, and we think that we're just going to pick up the scraps from the table. No way. David said, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and my cup overflows, and goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And yet, Satan comes in and says, not for you. He's an accuser. It's what he does. He's a liar. It's what he does. So your attitude should be, when Satan comes to accuse you, to react similar to the way the Lord does. This is a brand plucked from the fire. We've already done what is necessary to save this one. Get out of my courtroom. It should be the same to you when Satan comes to you and brings all the things that you've done and wants to show you all the mess and all the baggage and all the garbage. You say, how dare you bring this up? Jesus died for that. Are you saying that the blood of Jesus is not enough to cover me? Well, that sounds selfish. It's not because you're not relying on yourself. It'd be selfish to say, look at how wonderful I am. Don't you know that I'm a pastor? Don't you know that I tithe? Don't you know that I go to church? Who cares about any of that? Well, you say, look what Jesus has done. And you fall back on that. And he's going to say, ah, but you've done this and you've done that. And you say, so? The nails in the hand of Jesus Christ have already paid for that. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Yeah, but you still sin. Paul said in Romans 7, it's no longer I who sin, it's sin that dwells in me. Paul says, I'm stuck in this body. If I'm, when I'm out of this body, I'm not going to sin anymore because my spirit's been regenerated. And you know what's going to happen to Satan someday, don't you? Revelation 12, verses 10 through 11. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Someday Satan is going to get cast out of that throne room so fast it's going to make his head spin. And Revelation says he's going to get angry and he's going to start persecuting the Jews and the Christians who remain because he knows he's only got a little bit of time left. He's not going to have the ability to accuse anymore. So don't listen to him. He's like a lame duck politician. It's like, all I got to do is wait until your term is up and then we can do whatever we want. And how do we overcome it? It says, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. You throw everything on the blood of the Lamb. You say, I am putting all of my chips all in on Christ Jesus and his death. That's the only thing I'm going to trust. We sing the song, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And you maintain that confession and that testimony. We sang it tonight. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. What makes you think that you're so righteous? I'm not, but he is, and he gave me his righteousness. you still got to earn it. That's not what the Bible says. It says it is a free gift of God so that nobody can boast. Nobody comes in here and boasts. Well, I mean, we do it, but we shouldn't, right? Because it's all Jesus. In the courtroom of heaven, you have an advocate, and you've been justified by his blood. So when the accuser comes before the judge, he's got nothing to say. Colossians 3 verse 1 says, And if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He's telling us, keep your mind 
in heaven where Jesus is. Keep your mind on the ascension. Keep your mind on the fact that Jesus is at the right hand of God because that's where your assurance comes from. If we want to overcome fear and doubt, and we do, and there are so many people, y'all, that are, that are trapped in this stuff. As we have watered down the gospel, as we have moved away from the Lord, more and more people are finding they don't have joy and peace because they've left the source of joy and the Prince of Peace. How are we going to overcome those things? I'll tell you, it's not going to be through medication. And I have some very personal opinions about that because I've seen some friends that were devastated by medicine to help them overcome their fear and their doubts. And I recognize there can be some place for that. But that's not going to be how we overcome. Nor is it going to be through positive platitudes. And I've given a few myself in, in my time. Well, you just keep on keeping on. It's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. God's got you. That sounds nice. And there's nothing, again, nothing wrong with those. That's not how we overcome. Nor is it going to be through all the things that make life great. As great as that is. A good community. Oh, that's what's going to keep us out of that. Oh, you know what? A purpose in life. I've got to find my purpose. I hope you find your purpose in life. And I hope you have a great community. I hope you enjoy every minute of the life God's given to you. But the only way we're going to overcome those things, not temporarily set aside those things, is through the salvation of Jesus Christ. Lies are the problem, and the truth will set you free, Christian. So you've got to start believing the truth that Jesus died for you, he rose again, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. So when the accusation comes into your mind, you've got to do what the Lord does with it and kick it to the curb, because it's already been paid for. And you say, well, I try to believe, but I just can't. Let me tell you something. If you are waiting for an overwhelming feeling of belief to come over you, you're going to wait a long time. It must be an act of your will. You must say, I determine now to believe this. And you know it to be true. You can articulate it and you say, yes, I do believe it, but I don't believe it. Just choose to believe it. I'm going to choose to cling to Christ Jesus no matter what. And then when the enemy sends his attacks and launches the fiery darts, it's the shield of faith that you hold up. Not the shield of evidence, not the shield of experience or emotion, but of faith. Just believing. So you're just going to choose to believe? Yes. You'll be liberated in that moment. You choose to believe in the humiliation of Christ. There's three parts to that. The kenosis, when he emptied himself of his glory. The incarnation, when he became a man in hypostatic union. All the way down to the crucifixion and his burial. He was humiliated down into the depths of the earth. But now we're talking about the exaltation of Christ, which also has three parts. The resurrection from the dead, the ascension to the right hand of the Father, and we're waiting for someday for his return, his coronation, when he's going to come and he's going to make actual all the things that are true in the Spirit. The King will come. That's what we believe. And you must believe that there's a personal aspect to that. It was all done for you. You've got to believe his love. Believe that God loves you. And if you think, I don't think God loves me, you've got to choose to believe that. Make it one of the unshakable, ground-level assumptions of your life. And believe that his work is finished and you will enter into the rest that Hebrews talks about. Because you are a brand plucked from the fire. God has chosen to save you. And there's no accusation left that can stick to you. You are clothed not in your own sin, but in the righteousness of Christ. You have a mediator who's been to hell and back for you. So don't doubt his faithfulness.